All right, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to see you today. Hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week, we broke into 2 Corinthians, uh, this new study, by reading it in its entirety together. Uh, that was in an effort to affirm what we believe about the scriptures. Um, that's not maybe uh, super attractive to the world, uh, but it affirms what we believe about the scriptures, about what we believe that the Bible says about itself. Like in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And also 2 Timothy chapter 3 that teaches us that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. I told you last week and I'll tell you again today, I believe we need it, the word of God, more than we need me or any preacher. Uh, we need the word of God to speak with power and authority to our lives. This was in an effort also to affirm uh, and to heed what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 4 when Paul tells young Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. We're going to break into exhortation and teaching this week. We gave our attention to public reading last week, and we want to do that in, in our lives and in our gatherings. This was also in an effort to experience what we saw in Nehemiah chapter 8, which is this amazing scene where the scribe Ezra stands up on a platform built for this purpose, and he reads from the book of the Lord from the morning until midday, which is a lot longer than I read last week, by the way. From morning until midday, he read from God's word to God's people, and the people responded. They, they reacted to the word of God, hands lifted, amens shouted, and then later, some other guys came along and helped explain it so that people could understand it better. And so we wanted to experience that same Thing. And we read the entire letter in an effort to receive the letter as the original audience would have in one shot. They would have maybe broken it into chunks later and studied it more closely, maybe would have looked at it line by line later. But in the initial hearing, they would have gathered and heard it in one shot. Today, we're going to continue kicking off this series of messages in 2 Corinthians. It's going to occupy our attention, our time for the next several months. Um, with some introductory material today. And I wasn't joking a couple weeks ago when I said you should get a new pen and a new notebook uh, to have for this series. Uh, as we often do, over the long haul, those notebooks, those notebooks could be a valuable tool for you. Like I know Pastor Joe does this. Almost every time we start a new book study, he goes and gets one of those like classic uh, marbled looking black and white composition books and, and starts keeping notes in it. And he's got a shelf full of them. He uses them for a number of things, but for uh, sermon notes in particular. And he's got a shelf full of those. What a valuable tool that could be uh, for you in your own study of the Bible to have decades of those stacked up uh, that you could go back to and, and review. The other day, as I was thinking about this, I came across what might be a really helpful resource, these scripture study notebooks. I think there's a picture of the cover of one of these. Um, these are specific to books of the Bible, like you can buy just the 2 Corinthians volume of these, and this is what they look like on the inside. On the inside, they have uh, the text of Scripture on one page with tons of white space, right? So the lines are broken out, the verses are broken out, tons of white space on the left side, and then blank lines on the right side. And so this is like $7 on Amazon, 
uh, the Second Corinthians one. Like, and you can buy them all over the place. You can buy them in various translations uh, of, of the scriptures and keep your notes. And I'm, I, was, I saw this and I was like, oh, I wish I had known about this 20 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago to have, have a, a bookshelf full of these with inline notes and sermon notes. So I commend that to you as a resource that might be su- super helpful to you. The best $7 you'll spend uh, this week. Over these next several months, we're going to do what we usually do here at First Baptist Church, what we have been doing now for 15 years. That is studying through a book of the Bible slowly, verse by verse, letting the point of each week's sermon come from the text. The point of each week's sermon coming from the text is called expositional preaching, and it is the bread and butter of what we do in our weekly gatherings. Mark Dever defines expositional preaching this way. He says, it's preaching in which the main point of the biblical text, the main point of the biblical text being considered, becomes the main point of the sermon being preached. It starts with the text. And that text leads to the sermon. I have often before you argued for the importance of expositional preaching for the health of this church. Other approaches to preaching like topical preaching or biographical preaching like we just finished with the Apostle Paul. Those things can be helpful at times. Those things can be helpful for seasons. But the steady diet for the church must be exposition if we are going to be healthy. I've argued this for 15 years. I will continue to argue this as long as I stand in the pulpit. And I heard an interesting podcast the other day on which Bart Barber was the guest. Bart Barber, if you don't know, is the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the president of the SBC, and he's pastor of First Baptist Church in Farmersville, Texas. And Farmersville is a very small town. Um, I don't think it's any bigger than Harrisburg. And the church that he pastors, I think, is very similar to, in size to First Baptist Church. And he's been at it for a long time. Uh, He's been pastoring for a long time, and he was talking about expositional preaching, and he said this. He said, I couldn't name three sermons I heard in small, rural, Southern Baptist churches growing up, but the cumulative effect of preaching shaped my life. He goes on and says, it's like your biological growth. You don't point to a day and say, I grew four inches on August 3rd, but a good diet and a healthy life will produce incremental growth. Like, that's, that's pretty profound. Good diet, healthy life, incremental growth. The host of this podcast went on to say, this kind of approach, this kind of week in, week out, what does the text say, what does it mean, how does it apply to our lives, this week in, week out, put your nose in the book, hear from the Lord, that is not remarkable. He says it's not remarkable, but it is remarkably faithful. And that slow and steady incremental growth, as we are nourished by the word of God, that's the good stuff. We may, on occasion, experience a flash in the pan. We may, on occasion, experience wow moments that are accompanied by fireworks as we do that. Weeks, particular weeks that we remember that stand out to us and praise God for those moments. But that doesn't happen every week. We may have some remarkable days. And when God gives us those remarkable days, we want to receive them with joy and gladness. We may have remarkable days, but we must have remarkable faithfulness. We must have remarkable faithfulness over the long haul if we have any hope of being healthy. So in defending expositional preaching, which I want to do partly today, I also want you to see that it's not just about the health of the church. 
expositional preaching is a priority not just so that First Baptist Church will be healthy, but also because we believe, we really do believe in the sufficiency and the authority and the centrality of the Word of God. Expositional preaching is consistent with what we say we believe about the Bible. This is what First Baptist Church says we believe about the Bible. That it is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. That it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. We believe that. And to say we believe that and then talk about something else week in and week out just doesn't make any sense. We should stop saying we believe that. And so what I'm saying is expositional preaching fits with what we say we believe about the word of God. The sermon is coming from the text, not from the preacher. Like my favorite thing is when I look out and your heads are down. I can't see your eyes because you're looking at the text and say, is that, is that really what's going on here? Yeah, that's where, that's where the authority lies. We need to hear from the Lord. Week in and week out, we need to hear from the Lord. And the best way I know how to ensure that that happens is to focus on the word of God and not the preacher. We need to hear from the Lord. So we focus on the word of God. By the way, that's one of the exciting things about the preaching lab on Sunday nights. This is one of my favorite things about the preaching lab on Sunday nights. You're getting a whole bunch of different guys, like different backgrounds, different education, different personalities, different styles. Man, it couldn't be more assorted, right? This, this, these 14 guys that are going to preach the, the word of God to you. But what you can count on is you're going to hear the word of God preached. Like you're going you're gonna to have the Bible open and somebody is going to stand up and say, this is what it says, this is what that means, and now here's what we do about it. And so it becomes less and less about the preacher and more and more about the authority and the centrality and the sufficiency of the word of God, which are, which are all things we affirm and agree with. And so expositional preaching fits our doctrinal statement in ways that no other style of preaching could. So that's my defense, once again, of expositional preaching. And, and I don't do that to bore you. I, I, I do that to try, to try to build that as a core value within you, that, that you understand what's going on as we stand to deliver God's word. So maybe the question then is, why 2 Corinthians? Why are we going to break into 2 Corinthians after what we've just done over the last several months? Well, in our study of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, we came several times to 2 Corinthians. And in my own study of it, man, I was like personally super encouraged. As my study of Paul led me to texts in 2 Corinthians, I was often super encouraged. I feel like Paul's speaking my language. Uh, I also felt really challenged at times as he says, like, don't, don't, grow weary, don't grow weary and lose heart. Don't give up. Don't give in. Um, I felt challenged and encouraged. Uh, as I read through 2 Corinthians, it seems very real and relatable to our lives. And coincidentally, 2 Corinthians was the New Testament portion of my daily reading plan for the last few weeks as we wrapped up the series on the Apostle Paul. So I was engaging 2 Corinthians for Paul's sake, for you, and engaging 2 Corinthians for my own heart's sake, and thought, man, this is, this is feeding my soul, and it may be good for our souls as well. And also, in over 20 years of preaching, I have now preached through every New Testament book of the 
of the Bible at this point. Like uh, in some, some way, some shape, on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I've preached every book of the New Testament. And for first 20 years, I really tried hard not to repeat, not to go back and cover ground I've already covered. Uh, and when I did that, it was only uh, like a super important thing that we needed to do. But now, can't help it. Like it's, it's all going to be, it's all going to be repeat on some level. And so we're going to go back and do this. And I preached through Second Corinthians to you from this pulpit on Sunday morning, starting in 2012. In fact, on August 26, 2012. So rewind in your minds with me back to then. That feels like forever ago, doesn't it? August 26, 2012, Asher was not even one year old yet. And now he's in middle school. 2012, no one had heard of COVID. No one on the planet had heard of COVID. 2012, Barack Obama was president of the United States. Donald Trump was a reality show host. 2012, Apple just released iPhone 5. When I said that in the office this week, Dylan said, I still got it. 2012, Gangnam Style was a hit. You don't remember that one? Call me maybe. The world was a different place in 2012. We were different people in 2012. And so covering this again really makes good sense. And maybe I'll ask you, how many of you remember that sermon series? Maybe that proves Bart Barber's point from earlier. Not remarkable, but remarkably faithful. Because it's stored up in your heart somewhere, somehow. And God will stir that back up again as we cover it once more. So today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, uh, really as a launching point to do some introductory uh, comments so that we have some context for what we're going to study over the next several weeks. So chapter 1, verse 1 today, and then we'll be back there next week and cover the first couple of verses together uh, in depth. So look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, help us in these moments today to see the beauty and the value of life in the local church. We also pray that you will help us to embrace the leadership that you provide in the local church. We pray that you will teach us to live together as a family with you as our Father and Christ as our Savior, we ask that you would keep us close and clean, close to you primarily and close to each other, and that you would keep us clean from every stain of sin. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we dive into 2 Corinthians, it's important for us to have a little bit of context. And chapter 1, verse 1 essentially introduces the letter by saying, this is from Paul to the church in Corinth. And these two are familiar with each other. Paul and the church at Corinth at this point in history as he writes this, this is not their first encounter with each other. They had had a long-term relationship and some deep history. And so maybe the best way for us to consider that history is to track with the numerous letters and visits that occur between the apostle and the church in Corinth. Right? So I want to I try to outline for you the various engagements that Paul and the church at Corinth have had 
up to the writing of this letter, including the writing of this letter. Does that make sense? I'll give you a little bit of a disclaimer, though. As I outline this, it's kind of like end time stuff amongst Bible scholars. Almost every Bible scholar agrees on the stuff that's going to happen. They just don't always necessarily agree on the order in which those things will happen. And so you may say, oh, I don't know about that, Chris. I think that maybe some of this needs to be rearranged a little bit. Great. I would love to have coffee with you and have that talk. Um, but I'm going to present to you the way I think all of this falls together uh, in the history of Paul's encounters with the church at Corinth. So uh, just, just for the record, that's going to be up there for a while. Uh, so don't feel like you've got to scramble to write all that down. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground as we talk about this. So the first thing that you will notice is the pioneer visit. The pioneer visit. We read about this in Acts chapter 18. This is when Paul initially went to Corinth, preached the gospel, and planted the church. This is part of his second missionary journey. He doesn't go to Corinth, doesn't go that far on his first missionary journey. But on his second journey, he gets there. And you may remember that when he got there, he met some friends who were already followers of Jesus, Aquila and Priscilla, who not only were already followers of Jesus, but they also engaged in the same trade that Paul was engaged in, tent making. You remember this? And so these three kind of became partners in the work, the initial work in the city of Corinth. And man, uh, sometime on down the road, I'll give you more information about just how important, how strategic the city of Corinth is in the ancient world and just what a hotbed for the spread of the gospel that place was. But this is what happens when Paul lands in Corinth. We read about it in Acts chapter 18. I'm going to read it to you. These scriptures are not on the board, uh, but Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 5, says, When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Like big stuff happening in Corinth. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Like he's seeing people converted. He's seeing an awakening happen. Even though he's rejected by the Jews, some of the Jews come with him and believe in Jesus. And the Gentiles are now believing in Jesus. And the Lord says, don't be afraid anymore. You keep doing what you're doing because I got a lot of people in that city. I got a lot of people in that city. And it wraps up by saying he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So in the initial pioneer visit, Paul preaches the gospel and he stays among these folks for a year and six months. That's remarkable in the early ministry of Paul. That's a long stay in one place. A year and six months he stays with them. So that's the initial pioneering visit. The next thing that we know of is that there's a letter written. There's a letter written uh, from Paul to the church at Corinth that we don't have a record of. But it's referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Most believe that he wrote that to the church at Corinth from Ephesus. 
and he had been, a, been made aware of some issues that were happening in the church that he just planted. And so he wrote a letter to them in response to all of that. And also in response, perhaps, to some of the questions that he had gotten from them. Because they also wrote a letter to him. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So sometime between the pioneering visit and the letter we have in our Bibles of 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote a letter to Corinth and Corinth wrote a letter to Paul. There was some engagement on that level, the previous letter. And then what we have is 1 Corinthians, what we have in our Bible as 1 Corinthians. And that is probably written by Paul to the church at Corinth while he was still in Ephesus and is actually the second letter we have uh, that, that Corinth got from Paul. So 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, really. And I will argue in a minute that 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. There's a lot of exchange going on between Paul and this church. He wrote 1 Corinthians, and then, not long after that, he sent Timothy. He sent his protege, Timothy, to visit the church on his behalf. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 16 and in Acts chapter 19. 1 Corinthians 16 says, Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you and without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come um, to me, for I expect him with the brethren. So after he writes 1 Corinthians, he sends Timothy to visit. Timothy reports back big problems. Timothy goes to Corinth. He observes what's going on. It's kind of out of control. And he reports back to Paul who then makes a visit, a visit that he refers to as a painful visit. And he makes reference to it in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1. He says, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. So there's evidently a, a visit that that's the only reference we have about it. There's no mention of it in Acts. We don't know exactly what happened on this sorrowful, painful visit, but it was obviously ugly. Ugly enough that Paul left in a hurry, abruptly. And as we kind of read about it in 2 Corinthians, references to it in 2 Corinthians, it seems like somebody or somebody's in Corinth attacked Paul, maybe even physically, they definitely offended him to such an extent that he packed up and left in a hurry. This church that he planted, this church that he'd already been engaged with two times in writing, once with a visit from his friend. And he makes this painful visit and leaves. And then the next thing that happens is he sends Titus, another protege, another partner in the ministry. He sends him to Corinth. On, on his behalf, he sends Titus. You can read about this in chapter 7. Of 2 Corinthians verse 8, uh, I'll start reading in verse 12 though. It says, For although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, I have been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. All right, so Paul sends Titus to the church. And Titus is carrying a painful letter, a painful letter that came after the painful visit. 
Titus, when he comes to the church, is carrying this tearful or severe letter. That's the next thing that happens. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, this is the very thing I wrote to you. So that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So that painful letter, that tearful letter, that sorrowful letter that happens after the painful visit is actually the third letter from Paul to the church in Corinth, and it's lost. It's lost to history, just like the very first letter is lost to history. And sometimes I'm like, Lord, I wish we had that. Lord, I wish we had the first letter and the third letter, not just the second and the fourth. I want to know, what, what, was Paul, what was Paul saying in this tearful letter? I really want to know those things. And though I might want to have this, evidently I don't need to have it. Wouldn't you say? Because if we needed to have it, wouldn't the Lord have preserved it for us? And, and if it should have been preserved, even for generations of Christians, wouldn't the church in Corinth have preserved it? And yet, it's not preserved. And so evidently, even though we might want it, we don't need it. And we're just going to have to trust the Lord on that. So Paul writes the, the third letter. It's tearful. It's severe. We don't have it. And then he meets up with Titus. After Titus has delivered that painful letter, visited, he comes back to Paul, and he's got good news. He's got good news. He's like, the the painful letter worked on some level. There's been some repentance and there's going to be some restoration. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians, the book that we are studying. It's probably about a year after 1 Corinthians, which is probably a couple years, maybe even after he planted the church. So we've got 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, which is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church. And then at the end of 2 Corinthians, we learn that he intends to make a third visit to the church which actually happens, you can read about it in Acts chapter 20. All right, got it? What's the point? He knows these people. He's invested in these people. This is not a guy that traveled through town, didn't really care, and moved on. This is a guy who pastors these people from afar, cares deeply about their souls. He's been with them through some ups and some downs. He's been with them through thick and thin he loves them. He's been hurt deeply by them. He wants their good. This is serious investment. Paul Barnett says, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians spans a seven-year period. In A.D. 50 to 52, he spent a year and a half in Corinth, establishing the church. Sometime in 55, 56, he made a second visit. Well, that He calls a painful visit to deal with an emergency, disciplinary problem in the church. In 56 or 57, he came to Corinth for the third time and stayed three months before taking his leave from them. If you look at the, at the participation Paul had with the church at Corinth, it seems to outshine his participation in the churches everywhere else. Spends much, much time with them. Paul was super invested with these people, and it wasn't always smooth sailing. My favorite quote from this week is from Gary Miller, who said, Paul both loved the Corinthians and was driven nuts by them in equal measure. Is that relatable? Not just from leadership, but from everybody in the room? I love you people, and I'm driven nuts by you people. 
in equal measure. Wouldn't you say that about the people you love the most? And, and Gary Miller goes on and says, that's why I think this letter is the place to go in the New Testament for description embodiment of what gospel ministry is all about. And that's why we're going to look at it. It, it. it really is a great picture of what church life is. What it really is. And the important things that happen in the midst of it. And so I think there are a couple lessons from this little exercise. That, that picture. Go back, go back to that, Doug. The, the, um, the order of things. The letters and the visits. There's a lesson here for us. And the first lesson is this. Life in the church is messy. Oh, it's messy. And it's messy for a number of reasons. Because of our own sin, because of external opposition. Man, we could probably talk all day about the reasons why church life is messy, but it, we're going to agree it's messy, right? It's not squeaky clean. One, one, uh, in the Proverbs, there's this, there's this note about uh, where there is no oxen, the manger is clean. But you put some oxen in, and there's stuff on the ground. Ryan Smith? Like, that, that's the way it happens. When, when people are together doing the work of the Lord, it's going to be messy. That's one lesson. The other lesson is that leadership in the church is needed. The church at Corinth didn't always like what Paul brought to them, but they needed Paul to bring it to them. They needed the truth that he delivered, and so they should be thankful for Paul's leadership. They weren't always. In fact, they seemed to be aggressively opposed to him at some points, but they should have been thankful and they should have been submissive. Church life is messy. Leadership is needed. Look at what, what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Church of Corinth needed to hear that. Like Paul is watching over your soul. And he'll give an account for that. Make sure he can do that with joy and not with grief because him doing it with grief is no profit to you. Church life is messy. Leadership is necessary. And we're going to see that all throughout 2 Corinthians. And you're going to see that that's a dance. And sometimes it's tense. 2 Corinthians is notoriously difficult to outline. It seems like Paul will pick something up, chase it for a minute, and then set it down and go somewhere else. In fact, because of that, some scholars have said it's not just one book. It's not just one letter. It's a bunch of letters smashed together. Scott Haifman says, The letter we call 2 Corinthians is widely recognized as the most difficult to understand among Paul's letters. Well, that's encouraging, right? Let's spend the next two years digging through the most difficult of Paul's letters to follow. But Haifman is on to something. He's on to something. There's a lot going on, and it's emotional. Paul, Paul is clearly invested and emotionally attached to these people. He's not off in his ivory tower in Ephesus giving commands. He's, his hands are dirty. He's got a black eye from the fight he's had with these people, and yet he's involved in their lives seeking to help them. ESV Study Bible, as difficult as 2 Corinthians is to outline, ESV Study Bible helps draw attention to a central theme and some overlapping purposes of the letter. Look at this. This is helpful. It says, The central theme of 2 Corinthians is the relationship between suffering and the power of the Spirit in Paul's apostolic life, ministry, and message. 
life, ministry, and message. Suffering and power, all mixed up within that and all mixed up in his relationship with these people in Corinth. It goes on and says, Paul's letter is an extended defense of the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry and its implications. It's intended to accomplish three overlapping purposes. Number one, to strengthen the faithful majority and the purity of the church. When we were talking about the order of these things, you remember when Titus comes back to him, Titus has good news for the Apostle Paul that precedes 2 Corinthians. He's got good news that the painful letter produced some repentance and that the church has kind of turned around. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians is going to try to strengthen that bunch, going to try to invest in them to bring them to greater maturity. Number two, one of the purposes is to complete the collection as the expression of their repentance. We're going to talk a ton about giving when we get to chapter 8 and 9 about this collection that Paul is receiving from churches in the Gentile world to go back to Jerusalem to care for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And that action, if Corinth will give generously to that, it will be tangible evidence that they have repented. It'll be tangible evidence that they're on the right track. And so he's going he's to major on it for two chapters. And then thirdly, to offer the rebellious minority one more chance to repent before Paul returns to judge those still rejecting him and his message. Like there's still a holdout of people who are really upset. And this letter is going to hopefully bring them around as well. So as we study through the letter and we're going to go super slow, be on the lookout for that theme and those purposes as we make our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. So all of this introduction, I think there are three things that I want you to take away today. As we get ready, as we're like leaning in, I feel like, oh man, I went, went for a swim the other day uh, and, and my brother jumped in the water first and he comes popping up out and he goes, <gasps> like it was cold for the first time, the water was cold. And, and then Noah jumped in, Noah's strong and tough and he didn't make a peep. And I stood on the edge, like trying to work up the nerve to jump in the water for five minutes. These guys are like, let's go, we gotta, we gotta go. And I feel like that's where we're at right now with 2 Corinthians. We are right on the edge, about to dive in, and we're getting, we're getting ready for that. And so as we stand there on the edge, getting ready to dive in, I want you to hold on to three things. Number one, nothing's easy. My dad says this all the time. Nothing's easy. Nothing's easy within the church. Life together as the church is messy. And every one of us contributes to that mess. Every one of us are making a mess. And life here is messy. Leadership is tricky. Because of the mess, because nothing's easy, leadership is tricky. Let's hold on to that. Nothing's easy. If we expect to come in, gather together as the people of God, gather together as a family, and expect it all to be just smooth sailing all the time, we're crazy, right? We've lost our minds. Get this many sinners together in a room, and it's going to be difficult. Nothing's easy. That's number one. Number two, it's worth it, though. It may not be easy, but it's worth it. Because, listen, Christian, you need the church. Desperately. You need the church. You may think that, oh, I got it's me and Jesus and we'll be just fine. I could take or leave these people. No, no, no. You need the church. Absolutely, you need the church. There are things that you get in the gathering that you cannot get on your own. 
You need the other people in this church to be encouragers to you and correctors of you and instructors of you. You need this fellowship. And if you don't believe that, let me, let me ask you this question. How's it go when you're not here? When, when, you, when you're not connected with other believers, when you're not living within the family of God, how's that go for you? It, terrible, thank you. Yeah. And you, you, some people may say, well, it's not so bad because it's messy when I'm there. Oh, but man, you can go anywhere you want. You can go astray in a thousand ways when you're all by yourself. Christians need the church. That's one. Secondly, the church needs you. We need you. When you are not here, when you are not involved, when you are not connected, we all suffer. There are gifts and talents and passions that God has given to you that he has given to no one else on the planet. And he has placed you as part of this body for the good of this body. And when you're not here, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, it's like part of the body is missing. It's like my hand isn't here. Let me say it a different way. It's like our hand isn't here. It's like our ear is gone. You need the church, and the church needs you. It's worth it. It's worth it to walk this road together. And then the third thing. Nothing's easy, but it's worth it. And never forget that Jesus holds it all together. That he's the one who has brought us together. Because he's the one who saved our souls. He's the one who died for our sins and rose again. That's why Laura read from 2 Corinthians 5 before we sang, In Christ Alone. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He saved us and committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. And that has an application within this room, within this church, that has an application. And it has an application outside of this place. Because look what he says next. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like we say that to the world. Right, We have been reconciled to God through Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. And we say to the world, we beg you on behalf of God, on, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Because he made him to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How in the world could we live together? How in the world could we get along? How in the world could we love each other and encourage each other and live together as a family? Only because of the gospel. Only because we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. He's the one that will hold us together. And so we got to keep our eyes on him. As much as we love each other, as much as we follow leadership, we've got to all keep our eyes on Jesus, right? He's the center and he's enough. Let's stand together and pray.
Father, thank you for this moment. As we stand at the edge of 2 Corinthians, ready to dive in, ready, ready to see all that you will show us, ready to hear all that you will say to us, ready to submit ourselves to your authority. We have great anticipation, high expectation of what you will do. Yeah, we already know that nothing is easy. Under the sun, nothing's easy. It's messy, tricky. Pray that you will teach us over these next several weeks that it's worth it. That we need the church and the church needs us and that you're the one who holds us all together. Renew our commitment to you. Renew our commitment to one another. Be glorified as we live as a family here at First Baptist Church. Pray for men and women and boys and girls who are lost, dead in their trespasses and sins. that you will open their eyes to the work of reconciliation you have done through the blood of your son, that you are in Christ reconciling the world to yourself, not counting their trespasses against them. God, I pray that you will open eyes to that, open hearts to believe that, and that you'll save, rescue by your grace, God, grant faith so that boys and girls, men and women, would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant repentance that they would turn, walk with you in faithfulness. Show mercy, show grace, and be glorified in the process, we pray in Christ's name.